This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christy Shriver. We're here to discuss books that change the world and change us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we begin another beloved classic that has never been out of print, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. A book I must interrupt to say that it's Bella and Edwin's favorite book. As expressed in the Twilight series. Another <laughs> mm, classic. Well, Future classic, perhaps. <laughs> mm, well, if that's not an endorsement, what is? And, um, uh, but I feel I should warn everyone right now. If you're reading this book for the first time, don't expect a Bella and Edwin style love story. Um, if you do, No vampires. <laughs> no, you'll be angry and disappointed. I mean, uh, oh. look for something a little more tempestuous. Oh, my. To use a Bronte uh, metaphor. Uh, but before we get started, as we do every week, we'd like to ask you to consider honoring us with a favor of texting this episode or any other episode to a friend and sharing our work with others who may like it. And, of course, giving us a five-star rating. And uh, I know we make this announcement every week, but we've learned that this is how we grow, and we need your help, and we appreciate it when you do help us. We really do. And we also appreciate any feedback, pictures, comments, suggestions, memes. We've started incorporating those on the social media sites. If you'd like to share your experiences with these books and don't mind sharing them out, please do, and we'll feature you on any of our social medias. I would say TikTok because I did make an account, but I'm not sure I'm cool enough for that. <laughs> no dance skills, <laughs> or at least the quality well, they require. <laughs> that is that is true. I can vouch for that. Uh, but uh, social media world is fast-paced and modern, but in some ways, 
the violence of emotion, uh, that's the primordial characteristic of social media, is not too awfully far from the world of the metaphysical gothic writer Emily Bronte. Well, that's really true and interesting that you would make that parallel because Emily was so interested and reflective of that chaotic inner feelings of humanity. And I don't know anything that expresses the chaotic inner feelings of humanity more broadly than social media does. Mm -hmm. If it does anything at all, that's exactly what it does. But before we give you Emily's take, or her timeless take, really, on what all that chaotic inner turmoil is all about, it would be nice if we slide her into her historical context, because she does have a very unusual and talented family, and it's worth paying attention to. I'm not sure there was ever a family, really, with as much literary genius as this one, not that comes to mind immediately. I mean, you have the Bronte sisters with... Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and Charlotte, but they've got a third sister. So you have three sisters who've maintained a popular literary presence for 150 years. Try to outdo that. <laughs> <laughs> and I also say that they did. This does stem from brilliant parents. Well, you know, as parents, of course, we would always <laughs> like to think that. True. In this case, we're talking about Patrick Bronte and his independent and seemingly wonderfully spirited wife, Maria Branwell. Who knows what even greater pieces of art would have emerged, by the way, if Maria had lived. She died prematurely of cancer one year after her sixth child was born. And this death turned out to be the first of a long line of sadness that plagued Patrick Bronte's entire life. He died, of course, he lived forever at the age of 84. I guess that's not forever, but compared to his family members, he outlived all of them by almost half a century. But starting here at Maria's death, none of the four children really even had an opportunity to know their mother. Charlotte, years later, found the love letters that her mother had written to her father, and she had never read them before. And she, I thought this comment was so wonderful and sad. She said this, It was strange now to peruse for the first time the records of a mind whence my own sprang, and most strange and at once sad and sweet to find that mind of a truly fine, pure, and elevated order, I wish she had lived and I had known her. Ah, oh, that breaks my heart. Well, I mean, indeed, it, it's also testimony to the idea that genius is nature as well as nurture. Um, that She did identify with her mother's influence on her life just from reading a letter she had written before she was even born is a very interesting idea. I know, and we really could talk about Charlotte Bronte. There's actually more to say about her than we could Emily, and we will one day when we discuss Jane Eyre. But I do want to move on from Charlotte, uh, and I maybe want to not dwell on the cultural imprint of the book Wuthering Heights, although it has had a very powerful cultural influence. It, Like I said, it came up in Twilight. It comes up in a lot of things. It's been in a lot of different movies over the years. It's been, at the same time, a book that is very hard to define. It's actually very misunderstood. It's not a love story, really. It's not political. It's not social. If I were to speak to put what it's really about, from my perspective, I really think primarily it's a book about abuse, generational abuse, 
mental abuse. It's violent, all kinds of violent. And these are things traditionally we really haven't talked about a lot. Or if we do talk about them, there's definitely nothing positive to say. But in that sense, I want to give you a heads up if you haven't finished reading the book yet, because it can be dark there for a long Hmm. bit. Very dark. But hang in there, because as hard as this book is to read at times, the language is hard, the narrative form is hard, the topics are hard. You end up despising the characters. It's worth it because the feeling of redemption that you have at the end makes it worth it because there is redemption. And that's a nice idea, even in abuse. And that's worth reading for. But speaking of abuses, if we look at the dates of the book, it's not surprising that a book so dark and so disturbing would come out of the throes of some of the worst abuses in terms of industry that we know so far about in the Industrial Revolution. The Brontes lived in a part of England called Yorkshire in a little village called Hayworth. And that little place was particularly hard hit by the excesses of the Industrial Revolution. Gary, what can you tell us about that? The Industrial Revolutions are bad everywhere they occur. It doesn't matter. And uh, today, uh, Hallworth, where the Brontes spent most of their lives, is a small village in West Yorkshire. It's about 212 miles north of London. And the other big town people might know that's close would be York, which is only 43 miles away. But like all the other towns during the Industrial Revolution, uh, this one blew up because of all the mills that were built and bringing the industry in, but uh, also brought abuses and and just exploitations, as we all know, with Industrial Revolutions. And there's a lot of history here. It's actually interesting, and it involves social revolt and armed revolutions such as that of the, the Luddites. And what happened all over England, but specifically in Yorkshire, is that when the, the primarily rural countryside blew up with these factories and industrial progress, the uh, quality of life suffered in ways that were foreseeable, but you know also unexpected. And, and as, as it is with all new technologies, and that was the new technology today, we uh, see this very thing happening that uh, w- today with the information revolution and the Internet. And by the way, when uh, technology explodes, it explodes way faster than the legislative ability to uh, control it. And, and this always leads to the ones in control exploiting their newfound unsupervised powers. And uh, technology creates the means to provide lots of money and produce lots of products and Again, something we see today, but um, there, there is and there always will be exploitation by those who control the technology uh, until those things get worked out. We even saw it in the United States during the Gilded Age with Rockefeller and Carnegie. In, in the case of the Industrial Revolution, the most obvious abuse of power of the elite was in uh, the exploitation of child labor. Uh, that's an obvious and visible human moral failure and something that was addressed through laws that came later. Uh, However, uh, the environmental imprint as it affected the spread of disease, the food and the water supply and other elements of public health was actually more lethal, harder to see and impossible to understand for a long time. And and this is where we see the outside world intersect with the Bronte world. That's correct, because Patrick Bronte was a minister 
And it seems actually that he was a wonderful minister and a father, although clearly he's not a perfect father, but he was appointed to be the preacher of this growing village in Yorkshire. Haworth seemed wonderful. The parsonage the Brontes lived in was much nicer than the place they'd lived in before. It was on the top of a hill and it overlooked this beautiful town. And as the Brontes walked out of their house down the hill towards the church, they crossed the church cemetery and then they went on to school. And if you looked the other way out of their house, you could wander and lose yourself in those fabled moors Emily uses so artfully to describe the violent passions in her book. (laughs) Well, um, let me point out, if you don't know what we mean when we say moors, it's it's worth Googling and and looking at Uh, the geography of this part of England is absolutely beautiful and it's very unique. And uh, more land has peat and grasslands and a unique biodiversity. That's a cool word. When you read the book, Emily talks about them all the time, uh, but doesn't go into detail to tell you what they really look like. So I had to look up pictures to really visualize uh, this world that she drops us into. Uh, uh, to be honest, I had to Google what the moors were myself. <laughs> because in Wuthering Heights, the moors are so much a part of their story. They almost seem like a character. But I can't really grasp without looking or cheating in the, on the Internet what they really look like. She assumes you can imagine them, which you can, but Googling them is a little nice, and I enjoyed doing that. But back to the town, however, uh, I brought that up because there was a design flaw. I made it sound beautiful, and it was beautiful, but there was a really bad problem in the way that the town was laid out, and it was not outwardly apparent, but became a hideous personal and professional problem, really, for the Brontes, a a problem that was obvious to a town minister. Patrick Bronte, all of a sudden, found himself conducting over 150 funerals a year. That's a lot. His church, and it wasn't like a mega church, but his church was plagued by death. Every day, his daughters would walk across that cemetery underneath their home to go to church. And every year, it was filling up with more and more occupants to where they had to double up on how they buried the occupants. Death was literally everywhere. Patrick, among others, called for a health investigation from the state. Something was clearly wrong. It was terribly wrong if you have people dying at a rate like that. <laughs> I mean, at uh, 1.41% of the population was dead before reaching the age of six. Uh, there was an epidemic of cholera worse than other places that, that they couldn't explain. And finally, the Board of Health discovered that the key was literally under the Bronte's noses. And remember, their house was at the top of the hill. Under them was the cemetery. And under that was the church in the town. Uh, well, because of industrialization and disease and poor sanitation, uh, that was a problem in the town. People would die because of the sewage running in the streets um, or just the general filth. And they were burying people sometimes six layers deep on this hill. And when it would rain, which it did a lot, the water would run off the top of these graves and it would bring whatever killed these people, I mean, often cholera, back down into the town where we're getting into the water systems and kill more people over and over again. I mean, it was a literal death factory. You can only imagine. cycle. 
Well, we can only imagine how this affected everyone's psyche. And of course, if you think like that, it makes it more obvious why death is a prominent theme in all of the Bronte's writings, but especially in Emily's, although really she only has this one book and some poems. But she presents for us a strange and interesting religiously heterodox perspective of life and death. Emily looked at all of this and saw something different from everyone else. I mean, she does have a firm belief in the afterlife, but I say it's heterodox because for a girl who's raised in a very religious household, it's not the traditional view. In Withering Heights, we see a perspective of faith and divinity that's mystical. There is one very traditional professing religious character that she creates in the story, but he's not a likable one. It's Joseph. In fact, he's extremely unlikable and he's ignorant. He does not represent the best of faith. He's barely understandable when he talks and he personifies people with a religion with totally devoid of love and without kindness. This is not the religion of Emily's father. There's something more unusual and definitely more overwhelming in the book besides a superficial abuse of the name of religion. But we see it a lot with this prominent role of nature in the book. Emily expresses the external world of nature and the internal world of humans as dramatic, but they're uncontainable forces. They're supernatural. But the supernatural of Emily Bronte is not a kind of grandfatherly gentle force that desires to make everyone's life just a little bit easier. Bronte's supernatural elements are overwhelming and uncontainable, and she expresses powerful elements. She sees these from this universe exemplified in her community. She sees these elements in her family, specifically her brother, but she also sees these forces of nature in herself. Well, it is worth mentioning that the Hallworth community was not the only place the Brontes encountered death. That's a sad note. Emily's oldest sisters died of tuberculosis at the age of 12 and 10. Uh, it, it was something they contracted at a boarding school. It was supposedly advertised as a charity school for the daughters of ministers. And, but that ended up being a factory of death with almost half of them dying of preventable diseases and that were caused by malnutrition and, and exposure. True. And when Patrick saw, well, clearly when his first two daughters got sick, he yanked the other girls out of that school and homeschooled all of the kids as a single dad, all the way till they were teenagers. And of course, for them, that was fun. They actually enjoyed it. Although I do think Branwell, the son, might have been benefited from a little bit more structure. <laughs> it didn't turn out so well. <laughs> no. The children read all kinds of literature. The father was political. He was socially involved in his community. He discussed everything that was going on in the outside world with his children. So they would experience what today we call a classical education. They read all sorts of classics, literature, history, contemporary writers, modern magazines, journals of science, politics, philosophies. One of the great outcomes of this very non-traditional homeschool is that the children really did spend all of their time reading and writing, which basically meant they were honing a craft that would end up being their legacy, this written art. Well, don't forget, also, they were running around like crazy people in the moors. <laughs> That's true, too. Uh, Emily particularly loved nature and animals, and she felt totally comfortable outside in those uninhabited um, areas. And, and like we've said, 
people write from what they know. But also it's interesting how these childhood prodigies often have childhoods that were unique and it gives them um, opportunities early in life to work on their craft. You know, like where uh, throughout modern day artists where Britney Spears and Dolly Parton learned to sing as children and uh, Tiger Woods learned to golf with his dad. I mean, the Brontes learned to write and craft stories from each other at this pretty unusual homeschool. And that's exactly how it played out. They apparently created fantasy worlds like J.L. Tolkien style. They had romantic characters like pirates and castles and nobles who rescued people and claimed thrones. Emily and Anne, that's the youngest, they created a country that they called Gondol, and it was ruled by a queen, of course, and there were rival lovers. But (laughs) this is cute as an anecdote, but it's important to mention because it gives us an understanding of where all the dramatics from Wuthering Heights come from, because that's something people really ask. People who study these things suggest that many of Emily's characters come right from these fictional gondol stories. That's what I, So when you read Wuthering Heights, you see crazy people. You're going to see horrible people, extreme versions of the human personality, like you would expect, really, in a fantasy book, but not so much in a realistic book. You have Heathcliff. He's over the top, vengeful and cruel. Kathy is over the top. She's selfish and catty and ambitious. And you have to wonder, where the heck does a sweet little homeschool child come up with such awful people? (laughs) But most scholars will tell you, well, she read all these adventure tales and she was injecting these crazy characters into all these writings. And so it was their imaginary worlds reflected from romantic and gothic literature, things like Lord Byron, for example, she took out all these characters as a, an adult and really domesticated them into a world that she knew. So she gets the crazy fantasy and puts it in this world of the Moors. It's, they're hyperbolic. They're terrible. They're haunting. But at the same time, you can't stop reading about them. It's mesmerizing. (laughs) Mesmerizing is a good word. You know, and it was mesmerizing, but not well received at the time by literary critics. And uh, Emily, like her sisters, uh, concealed her gender when she published the book, uh, even though the publisher was in on it, too. She went by the name of Ellis Bell for the obvious reason of avoiding the prejudice of being a woman writer. So when the reviews came out, they were um, unified in this same assessment that you just described. They all hated the book, but at the same time, they couldn't put it down. Uh, from the perspective of history, it's kind of funny that later on, after Emily's death, when Charlotte told the world the novel was written by a young 27-year-old single girl with no lived experience, it blew all their minds. And I mean, how did she imagine such evil? I mean, let's read some of the original reviews Oh, the book written before that revelation, just for fun. They're very interesting. They are fun. Here's one. This is a strange book. It is not without evidence of considerable power, but as a whole, it is wild, confused, disjointed, and improbable. And the people who make up the drama, which is tragic enough in its consequences, are savages ruder than those who lived before the days of Homer. Hmm. Okay, (laughs) and then there's this. Wuthering Heights is a strange sort of book, baffling all regular criticism, yet it is impossible to begin and not finish it, and quite as impossible to lay it aside afterwards and say nothing about it. 
in Wuthering Heights, the reader, shocked, disgusted, almost sickened by the tales of cruelty, inhumanity, and the most diabolical hate and vengeance, <laughs> and along come passages of powerful testimony to the supreme power of love, even over demons in the human form. The women in the book are of a strange, fiendish, and angelic nature, tantalizing and terrible, and the men are indescribable out of the book itself. And uh, yet, towards the close of the story occurs the following pretty soft picture, which comes like the rainbow after a storm. <laughs> Wuthering Heights is a strange and artistic story. There are evidences in every chapter of a sort of rugged power and unconscious strength, which the possessor seems never to think of turning to the best advantage. The general effect is inexpressibly painful. We know nothing in the whole range of our fictitious literature which presents such so shocking pictures of the worst forms of humanity. <laughs> She's, she found them all. And, uh, every one of those reviewers call it strange. And here's a horrible one. How a human being could have attempted such a book as the present without committing suicide before he had finished a dozen chapters is a mystery. <laughs> this book before committing suicide. I mean, they talk about it with disgust. But then when you read the details, it's like they can't stop reading it. And in some sense, that's what happens when I read the book. I mean, I don't know if you can love this novel the same way you might love a Christmas classic. <laughs> I don't think so. Like Elf or National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> no, no, this might be what you get if you crossed um, Edgar Allan Poe with a Christmas story and maybe threw a little Deadpool in there on top of it. And I want to say this um, about this book. In the very, very beginning, in the earliest ideas, when you and I were thinking about producing a podcast... What got our attention, this was the first book that we discussed, and you told me about these characters as you described them. Me being the psychology person was going, this book is full of people with personality disorders. <laughs> and that was the beginning of what is now the How to Love Live podcast. I know. And on that note of introduction, let's switch from biography and get into this crazy book. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Uh, although I think we should probably finish by telling the sad ending Aww, of Emily. Maybe so. Her brother Branwell, who, by the way, at this point in their lives was a drunk and a drug addict. And uh, that's another sad story for another day. But he died in their family home in 1847, just a year after Emily's book came out. Um, Emily caught a cold at his funeral, but refused to be treated by a doctor. And who knows if that would have helped her. And, uh, her cold developed eventually into tuberculosis, and she died less than three months after her brother. And uh, For a family that was so close-knit, that was really beyond tragic. It, it wasn't, by the way, too awfully long that the other two daughters passed as well. Patrick Bronte, who had been uh, an engaged, lively extrovert in his early years with a household full of children, I mean, he had the life literally torn out of him by the time his wife and four children died. Well, indeed. And, of course, they say, although it's an unproven rumor, that Charlotte, after she died, took the sequel of Wuthering Heights and burned it. Who knows why? Was it out of respect? Was she jealous since Wuthering Heights did actually blow up to be a great success? Either way, uh, it's just another incredibly tragic personal story for all of them and for us so here we are 150 years later emily lives through this single powerful tale and she invites us to go with our guide lockwood 
into the land of the Moors, and we will take a peek into this strange place called Wuthering Heights. And I say Wuthering. Mm. I have a little bit of a hard time with my R's and L's and all that kind of stuff. Oh, how about Wuthering? Wuthering. Yeah. <laughs> it means strong winds. And I'm always confusing it with withering, like That's to wither. Yeah. Do, yeah. But Wuthering Heights, the heights of strong winds. So let's begin. This wild tale. Should we read the first page? Let's read the first page. 1801. I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbor that I shall be troubled with. This is certainly a beautiful country. In all England, I do not believe that I could have fixed on a situation so completely removed from the stir of society. A perfect misanthropist heaven. And Mr. Heathcliff and I are such a suitable pair to divide the desolation between us. A capital fellow, he little imagined how my heart warmed towards him when I beheld his black eyes withdraw so suspiciously under their brows as I rode up, and when his fingers sheltered themselves with a jealous resolution still further in his waistcoat as I announced my name. Mr. Heathcliff, I said. A nod was the answer. Mr. Lockwood, you're a new tenant, sir. I do myself the honor of calling as soon as possible after my arrival to express the hope that I have not inconvenienced you by my perseverance in soliciting the occupation of Thrushcross Grange. I heard yesterday that you had had some thoughts. Thrushcross Grange is my own, sir, he interrupted, wincing. I should not allow anyone to inconvenience me if I could hinder it. Walk in. The walk-in was uttered with closed teeth and expressed the sentiment, Go to the deuce! Even the gate over which he leant manifested no sympathizing movement to the words, and I think that circumstance determined me to accept the invitation. I felt interested in a man who seemed more exaggeratedly reserved than myself. Let's just stop here for a second to provide orientation. I'm always one for knowing the plan, and our reading goal for this week is chapters one through three, and if all goes well, we'll try to manage through chapter four, but no promises. So we need to start here with what we just read. It's the year 1801. We'll talk about chronology next week, but it's just interesting to pay attention to for now. Because at first we've met our first unreliable narrator. And I have to tell you, get ready. He's a bit of a buffoon. (laughs) He is. Now, one of the many things that makes this novel extremely confusing is this unusual narrative style. We talked about it when we studied Frankenstein, this concept of the frame narrative. If you remember, Mary Shelley had one narrator tell a story to another who told another, like the Russian Matryoshka doll. It's kind of the same way. We are entering the world of Withering Heights under the auspices of Lockwood. Now, Lockwood is this ultra-civilized, goofy stereotype, really. A gentleman with all the trappings of good breedings. Clearly someone who has led what I would call an uncomplicated life. He comes across to me as someone who sees himself slightly better than average and has made it a point to have all the right opinions and prejudices looking slightly down on those who may not have his fine sensibilities. A man like Lockwood would never be anything like the extreme people whose lives we're walking into. But in these first three chapters, Emily points out to the careful reader 
that Lockwood and perhaps us, if we're like him, doesn't know anything and his buffoonery misjudges everything. He even misjudges himself. When he gets to Wuthering Heights, he very obviously and absolutely misjudges every single thing he sees. Mr. Heathcliff is a perfect misanthrope, which comes across as slightly endearing. He and Mr. Heathcliff are a suitable pair. He's a capital fellow. Maybe this is what Lockwood wants to be true, but it doesn't take the reader long to figure out that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He messes up all the relationships. This girl is not Mrs. Heathcliff, as in Heathcliff's wife. She's not married to Harrington, and Harrington's not Heathcliff's son. Lockwood foolishly goes back to a place a second time he probably shouldn't have gone because he goes for two days in a row, and this time he really steps into nonsense. He tells Heathcliff to his face that the woman, the presiding genius over home and hearth, if you know the story, that is definitely a terrible mischaracterization (laughs) of this girl that he doesn't even know her name. And she's not the wife. Heathcliff, for one thing, is over 40. The girl, even to Lockwood, doesn't look 17. Heathcliff has to tell him that her husband's dead. It's just one awkward conversation after another. The fact that Lockwood also is always being attacked by dogs (laughs) is awkward. Finally, we get to the ultimate awkwardness. Lockwood finds himself snowed in and is forced to spend the night in this unwelcoming place. So what do we call it when the audience knows you're a fool, but the actor on stage doesn't? Irony. Mm. So this part is where the book really starts getting um, spooky. The, The creepy housekeeper walks him up the creepy stairs and tells him the house has strange things going on. And uh, she puts him in a bedroom and he sees all these names scratched on the paint in various places. He sees uh, Catherine Earnshaw and Catherine Heathcliff and Catherine Linton. And of course, um, he picks up to read, which is very nosy of him, (laughs) what seems to be Catherine's diary. True. This is very nosy. And it serves him right because he's going to fall asleep and he begins to dream this very tormented dream where he and Joseph, remember, that's the creepy, overly religious, mean servant that he's just met. They go to a church service together in the snow, and they have to listen to this sermon called 70 times 7 and the first of the 71st. And this sermon has 490 parts, if you can imagine. If you ever sat through church, no one wants that many points in Mm. the sermon. But each part is addressing a separate sin. (laughs) Well, well, Chris, you have to ask you this. Uh, is all that numerology something that matters in the story? Funny you should ask. Of hmm. course it does. For one thing, 490 is 70 times 7, which if you know something about the New Testament, and guess who knows? Emily Bronte, minister's daughter. She knows that that number is associated with how many times Jesus tells his disciples to forgive each other. Well, Lockwood, in his dream, gets up in the service and denounces the preacher, whose name is Jabe Branderham, and he denounces him as the sinner no Christian should need to pardon, to which Jabe gets all the congregation to attack Lockwood. So this is weird. Weird dream. I know. Lockwood wakes up, startled by the noise of a branch from a tree, but then again immediately drops into this second dream. 
This was weirder still. And this one, Lockwood is seized by Kathy's icy fingers. This is where you don't want to read this at night, like in the dark. (laughs) There's a voice sobbing, let me in, let me in. He asks, who are you? And the voice answers, Catherine Linton, I've come home. I'd lost my way on the moor. Mm, Yeah, some creepy stuff going on here. Well, it is, but... Then you have to wonder, because this is the intro stuff, and you have to wonder, what's the connection between the two dreams? Well, Bronte connects them, although it may or may not be very clear, but we have to connect them. Since Lockwood has arrived at Wuthering Heights, he's been abused verbally by Heathcliff, physically by the dogs... (laughs) His nose bleeds, and now he's getting abused even by his horrifying dreams. The first dream talks about forgiveness, unforgiveness, what things are forgivable. And in the second dream, a girl comes claiming to be a waif for 20 years. Now, a waif, I had to look up that word. That's an English term for a female outlaw. This ghost has been condemned. But for what? What did she do wrong? We're going to find out what she's done wrong. And perhaps maybe it is unforgivable. Apparently there is such a thing. When Lockwood wakes up and screams, Heathcliff emerges for an interesting exchange. Lockwood claims the house is swarming with ghosts and goblins. And let's read this part. It's kind of fun. So Lockwood claims there's ghosts and goblins to which Heathcliff replies. What do you mean? And what are you doing? Lie down and finish out the night since you are here. But for heaven's sakes, don't repeat that horrid noise. Nothing could excuse it unless you were having your throat cut out. If the little fiend had got in at the window, she probably would have strangled me, I returned. I'm not going to endure the persecutions of your hospitable ancestors. Again, was not the Reverend James Brandenham akin to you? On the mother's side, and that minx, Catherine Linton, or Earnshaw, or however she was called, she must have been a changeling, wicked little soul. She told me she had been walking the earth these 20 years, a just punishment for her mortal transgressions, I've no doubt. Scarcely were these words uttered when I recollected the association of Heathcliff's with Catherine's name in the book, which had completely slipped from my memory, thus till awakened. I told you he was an idiot. I blushed at my inconsideration, but without showing further consciousness of the offense, I hasten to add, The truth is, sir, I passed the first part of the night in. Here I stopped afresh. I was about to say, perusing these old volumes. Then it would have revealed my knowledge of their written as well as their printed contents. So, correcting myself, I went on, in spelling over the name scratched on that window ledge, a monotonous occupation calculated to set me asleep, like counting or... What? can you mean by talking in this way to me? thundered Heathcliff with savage vehemence. How, how dare you under my roof? God, he's mad to speak so. And he struck his forehead with rage. I did not know whether to resent this language or pursue my explanation, but he seemed so powerfully affected that I took pity and proceeded with my dreams, affirming I had never heard the appellation of Catherine Linton before, but reading it often overproduced an impression which personified itself when I had no longer my imagination under control. Heathcliff gradually fell back into the shelter of the bed as I spoke, finally sitting down, almost concealed behind it. 
I guessed, however, by his irregular and intercepted breathing that he struggled to vanquish an excess of violent emotion. Not liking to show him that I heard the conflict, I continued my toilette rather noisily, looked at my watch, and soliloquized on the length of the night. Not three o'clock yet. I could have taken oath it had been six. Time stagnates here. We must surely have retired to rest at eight. Always at nine in winter and rise at four, said my host, pressing a groan as I fancied by the motion of his shadow's arm, dashing a tear from his eyes. Mr. Lockwood, you may go into my room. You'll only be in the way, coming downstairs so early, and your childish outcry has sent sleep to the devil for me. And for me, too, I replied. I'll walk in the yard till daylight, and then I'll be off. You need not dread a repetition of my intrusion. I am now quite cured of seeking pleasure in society, be it country or town. A sensible man ought to find sufficient company in himself. Delightful company, muttered Heathcliff. Take the candle and go where you please. I shall join you directly. Keep out of the yard, though the dogs are unchained and the house Juno mounts sentinel there. And, nay, you can only ramble about the steps and passage. But away with you. I'll come in two minutes. I obeyed so far as to quit the chamber. When, ignorant where the narrow lobbies led, I stood still and was witness involuntarily to a piece of superstition on the part of my landlord which belied oddly his apparent sense. He got onto the bed and wrenched open the lattice, bursting as he pulled at it into an uncontrollable passion of tears. Come in, come in, Kathy, do come. Oh, do once more. Oh, my heart's darling. Hear me this time, Catherine, at last. The specter showed a specter's ordinary caprice. It gave no sign of being, but the snow and the wind whirled wildly through, even reaching my station and blowing out the light. Well, you can see Lockwood eventually figures out that Wuthering Heights is a mess. And if we notice carefully through the text, and not necessarily the part we read, but Lockwood is more aggressive and meaner as we go. When he finally gets back to Thrushcrash Grange, he tells Nellie that people in remote regions do live more earnest, more in themselves, and less in surface, change in frivolous external things than city dwellers. But Nellie replies to him, Oh, we are the same as anywhere else when you get to know <laughs> us. <laughs> and there's our invitation. Leave the world of Lockwood, the world where you take on the social expectations and prejudices of your society. Uh, instead, open your mind to the possibility that you may know these people or worse. You may be more like these people in many ways if you're honest with yourself and something our narrators won't be during the book. And that's what's great about literature. Uh, I've always thought writers were the first psychologists, and this seems to be the case with this book. And this book seems to be about um, storms. It, it also seems to be uh, that maybe Bronte tries to understand the storms that pervade the, her world, our world, both on the inside and the outside. And it's in this storm that Lockwood makes his way back to Thrushcrash Games. He can't find himself, and Heathcliff takes him part of the way. Uh, he manages to make a two-mile trip in four, uh, <laughs> but he finally makes it back. And next week, we'll open up the next frame narrative, because when he gets back, Lockwood is going to retreat safely into the distance and try to get out of Nellie, the housekeeper. 
the story about who these people are. Mm, more <laughs> creepiness to look forward to. <laughs> hmm. Well, thanks for being with us today. Um, please follow us on our How to Love Live podcast page. And uh, please check us out on our Facebook page and our Instagram page and our pod page. We're everywhere, all kind of places to find us. Again, thanks for being with us. Peace out. <laughs>